You're listening to Civic from the San Francisco Public Press. On this edition, more than 50 candidates are running for a seat on the Democratic County Central Committee. We'll get a sense of what the governing body of the local Democratic Party is, how it works, and why it matters in San Francisco. It's a little confusing for a lot of people, but that's basically uh, what's going on here is a contest for control of the local Democratic Party to be able to then influence who will get the endorsement and who will get you know, contributions or other help from the party. I'm Laura Wenis, and this is Civic. If you're a registered Democrat, your ballot in the March election is likely to be pretty long because there are literally dozens of candidates running for the county central committee in San Francisco. In fact, there are more than 50 candidates running to fill 24 seats. On this program, we can't give you much insight into who to choose, but if you're not super familiar with the structure and function of these committees, we have you covered with the help of San Francisco State University Associate Professor of Political Science, Jason McDaniel. Professor, thanks for coming back to Civic. Thank you for having me. So I want to emphasize before we get into the details that if you are a no party preference voter, as in you didn't register with a political party, this isn't a race you'll even have on your ballot. There are county central committees and people running to sit on them for the Republican, Green and Peace and Freedom parties, too. But they're not going to appear on the ballot, even if you are a member of those parties, because the number of candidates is less than or equal to the number of seats to be filled. So these committees are a local governing body of the national party. So if you're not in the party, you don't get to vote on who serves on the committee. That's unlike the presidential primary, where certain parties allow non-members to vote to select a candidate for president if they request to do so. We have a whole other show about that, which you can find at sfpublicpress.org. But in terms of central committees, they are the governing bodies of the local party. What do they actually do well, I would, you know, slight correction there. This is not necessarily part of the national party. It's actually part of the California state party, Thank you. which is then also part of the national party. Mm-hmm. Parties in the United States are, are very um, decentralized, is a word we use, and kind of non-hierarchical. Um, you know, they are, you know, so local, you know, local county parties often have a lot of say. State parties, they, they're feeding uh, delegates and activists into the state party. Uh, and then in the presidential primary years, the state parties then feed into that national uh, convention and and delegates in that regard, which is very important. These committees are designed to, in in two words, you know, party building is the word that I would use, right? They are designed to educate voters about what the party stands for, but also mostly to help candidates right, who are running under the party banner, whether in nonpartisan or partisan races. It's organization in service to the candidates. But of course, if you don't yet have the candidates selected in terms of being nominated for that the official party uh, uh, ballot line, it's also designed to regulate the competition between those candidates and the different factions within parties that are trying to fight for control of the party. They do voter mobilization, voter registration, you know, turning out voters to, to vote in elections, and then recruiting candidates to, to run under the Democratic Party banner, all to try to make the Democratic Party as competitive as possible uh, when it comes to election time and to gaining power in local, state, and national uh, elected office. So just a technical thing here. On the ballot, there's two different contests for DCCC representing Assembly District 17 and 19. Can you explain why the DCCC is generally considered as one body, but there are two separate districts here? You know, it's a function of different rules. They generally follow the state Assembly District borders, right, within counties. 
Okay, and the size of the of of the number of candidates that are elected per one of those districts in San Francisco, we have those two districts. They elect different amounts based on the amount of Democrats, the number of Democrats in each assembly district. In terms of either voted or registered, you have more members of a central committee coming from a district that has more Democrats. In this case, it's the 17th Assembly District, which is currently represented by David Chu uh, of San Francisco. And um, that's a larger, more Democrats, more people living in that district. The 19th Assembly District, currently represented by Phil Ting in the Assembly, has will elect fewer members to the to, than, uh, to the central committee uh, than the other one. And again, it's based on numbers of Democrats. So is that the same for other parties as well? Because we do, like I mentioned, have a rep- Republican County Central Committee here, and, and the same is true for other parties. And I imagine that there are central committees in other parts of the country for the Democratic Party that are also smaller. How, how does this vary by um, depending on how many people are registered to a party in a certain area? Uh, to be perfectly honest, it's entirely up to the parties to set their own rules. Right. And so it's actually one of the hard things to study is that you have so much variation, so many counties, so many different party organizations. I call them private organizations, you know, in the sense of they are not government organizations, but they also perform this sort of quasi public role in that they perform essential functions in our democracy to help recruit candidates and, and educate voters and register voters, right, uh, um, and, and get them voting in elections. So we often have a hard time separating out what a part of this is private and what part of this is about government, right? And so they can set their own rules. They can do it for, you know, other members of, of the party can internally elect their central committees. Uh, um, if they're in, in, in very sort of places where there's not a lot of Democrats or, or places where the Republican Party doesn't necessarily have a lot of members, in, you know, like in San Francisco, they probably can change their, their, their bylaws from election to election sometimes or from you know, time to time. It often is about uh, who is you know, interested in, in you know, being on the committee. They can have a lot of say. The, the state and national parties will have bylaws and, and regulations. So you have to abide by those guidelines as well. Uh, but I mean, again, that's a long way of saying it's hard to say and the rules can be different from place to place and from time to time. Well, when we make that distinction between, you know, a a political body versus a government body, that just raises to me the question, where does the money come from to run these things? Because it certainly doesn't come from government, right? Well, no, it's up to the parties to raise the money. And, and, um, you know, there are other political, just like other political donations. And interestingly enough, you know, one of the things that political scientists like to talk about is how weak our parties in the United States are. Um, They're not only are they decentralized and, you know, non-hierarchical, we don't have, you know, the the head of the Democratic Party cannot order any other Democrats to do anything, right? They don't have a lot of power over other members of the Democratic Party. That person's often the president, right, if, if, if there's an elected president, or the governor of California is the head of the California Democratic Party. In other countries, parties have much more power to sort of kick members out if they don't do what they want. Or, or We've seen this in, in recently in, in the UK where uh, the conservative Tory party, party kicked out some of its members for not supporting uh, Brexit, right? In the United States, it doesn't quite work that way, though... We've seen Republicans sort of being sort of drummed out of the, of the Republican Party for maybe not supporting Donald Trump. Uh, and that's unusual. That's somewhat new. Uh, but it's the Republican Party becoming more like, I think, a lot of European parties, more, more strong control over their members. But it's not official. Right. And so the, it's up to the politicians and the state parties to raise that money. And one of the things that we've done is weakened their ability to raise money. Um, the McCain-Feingold Act in 2002 was the last sort of major campaign finance reform act uh, uh, passed by Congress and approved in the United States. And it outlawed the ability of parties to raise money, what was called soft money, uh, money from corporations and unions. Uh, uh, and, and there were sort of 
very lax or sometimes unlimited caps on those kinds of donations, right? And it outlawed that and so subjected parties to raising what's called hard money, which is individuals and, and uh, PACs, and they're highly regulated, uh, uh, you know, contribution limits to that. And so it made it harder for parties to raise money, and it made it harder for parties to then uh, fund their candidates and mobilize voters, or to use something contemporary to perhaps run a state caucus in Iowa. I think one of the one of the things underreported stories is that was you know up to the party to run that. That was not the state of Iowa running that, and they received tons of money from the candidates running for president to fund that caucus then they did a bad job of it, <laughs> which is, you know, not unusual necessarily. But I think if perhaps they had more money, they could have hired, hired more people to do it instead of doing it by volunteers. Long way of saying the party has to raise that money and it's not always the, the easiest thing to do. And does the party locally, let's say the San Francisco Democratic Party, which I think we can functionally also call the DCCC, does it spend money on candidates or does it only spend money on initiatives to, to sort of do what you mentioned earlier, grow the party or develop the party? Right. So the short answer is it does what the majority of the members of the Central Committee decide to do. Mm-hmm. Up until McCain-Feingold, they very much, once they receive the official endorsement of the San Francisco County Democratic Party, then they were allowed to then uh, give money to those candidates to help them run their operations. That was quite normal, but it's not guaranteed, uh, depending on how much the money they raised. Um, or they could spend it on voter turnout or you know, voter registration drives, what have you. Again, most parties, most county parties do a lot of voter registration drives. But part of the reason why the DCCC was so important is that endorsement did come with some monetary heft um, and still does, but not as much as it did prior to 2002, right? So that endorsement matters. What, what they can do now to help their candidates is endorse them and give them the, the imprimatur of the official you know, Democratic Party which is important when you have lots of Democrats running for office um, to say this is the endorsement, the official endorsement of the Democratic Party is important. It comes with also a what's called a slate mailer that the party pays for, sort of a direct mailing that will list the endorsed candidates, and that, that pretty much goes to just about every Democrat uh, in the county, right? Uh, that's important. They have access to some state Democratic Party uh, endorsements and maybe contributions as well. Not as much as before 2002. The endorsement matters because of the the name of the Democratic Party and then the ability to get your name out there on some certain mailers uh, and to receive some some campaign contributions as well in some cases, but not always. So you did talk about how the committee is not necessarily hierarchical or the party is not necessarily hierarchical, but I do want to point out that there are sort of different roles, different seats on the committee. So if you look at the list of members of the committee, there might be some familiar names on it, including Nancy Pelosi and Dianne Feinstein, who are known uh, as ex-officio members. So there are 33 seats on this committee. Nine of them go to state and federal electeds. Can you explain in a little bit more detail what these seats are, who they go to, and and how that works? So, in fact, there's sort of 24, but then the ex officio members are automatically, if you are an elected official of the Democratic Party and you live in that county, in this case San Francisco, and we have a lot of elected officials at the statewide level and, you know, in the local level that live in the city and live in the county, you are given an automatic membership on the DCCC, and that's the ex officio members. So that number fluctuates depending on how many uh, people fit that definition, right? So that, so that as, as I understand it, the 24 members then are the elected members, mm-hmm. right? And I believe it's 17, uh, 
I'm, I'm forgetting the numbers, but it's 24, and it's made up between the 17th the and districts. 18th, you know, the two districts mm-hmm. as well. Just to be clear, that doesn't mean that Nancy Pelosi and Dianne Feinstein are showing up for DCCC meetings all the time, right? right. They send somebody to represent them. Uh, as a matter of fact, yes, and it's one of the things I tell my students. Uh, oftentimes, uh, former students of mine who maybe started out interning with some of the local elected officials will be asked to attend these meetings as representatives of their, you know, their boss, right? And what I tell people is these these central committees, this, these local Democratic Party organizations are very open to, you know, people coming in and getting involved. And that doesn't mean you show up at a meeting and you're automatically getting involved. But if you have, you know, something you're interested in and you are maybe a leader of organization or if you're a student who has the energy and passion to become involved in local politics, I think getting involved in these local meetings is an important and interesting way to learn more and to, uh, to, to get involved and have your say. These parties are permeable. They're not hierarchical and open to influence from about new issues and new groups and new people. But to kind of go back to what you were saying, they elect Internally, once you have the elected members, they elect their own sort of internal officers. But that's done amongst those who are elected uh, uh, to the office, right? Um, And then one of the things that we've seen in San Francisco is that a lot of the local elected officials on the board of supervisors or what have you are run then to be on the SF uh, uh, DCCC. And then they resign after they win their elections and then appoint somebody who is someone who's a representative of theirs or who they trust or who sort of on their team, so to speak. And so it's a little confusing for a lot of people, but that's basically uh, what's going on here is a contest for control of the local Democratic Party to be able to then influence who will get the endorsement and who will get you know contributions or other help from the party. We'll get back to this conversation with Professor Jason McDaniel in just a moment. You've been listening to Civic from the San Francisco Public Press. KSFP and the San Francisco Public Press are supported by listeners like you. Learn more about our membership program and join the public press at sfpublicpress.org donate. You can make a donation online or send a check to the San Francisco Public Press, 44 Page Street, Suite 504, San Francisco, California, 94102. Thank you, and thanks to the hundreds of other public press members who have made our work possible for 10 years. Let's hear more from Professor Jason McDaniel about the Democratic County Central Committee. So we were just we started to go down this road, but we were talking a little bit about what the party can do. And one of the things that it does is make endorsements. And that's where the balance of who sits on the committee starts to become politically very relevant for the city. Different members of the committee or the party put forward competing slates for endorsement. So how do those battles play out and what are the results for which candidates get endorsed? So there's definitely the, the, the idea that you'll hear a lot in San Francisco politics that the most important endorsement is the Democratic Party endorsement, right? Now, I don't know if that's true. I definitely know it's one of the most important endorsements and the perception that it is the most important, you know, there, most others are not up for an elected process, right? So that's why there's a lot of, you know, competition for that endorsement. Others, if it's a Chronicle newspaper or a Bay Guardian or other different groups and Democratic Party clubs, which are chartered by uh, uh, the local DCCC. So that's another role for the DCCC to do. Um, but, you know, there, there was some received wisdom. And I found a quote from, from 2010 uh, by a then member, Arlo Hale Smith, who had been apparently a member of the DCCC for 25 years. And again, it, it used to be the case that it was rare for elected, current elected officials to run for the DCCC. That's become much more commonplace now. And we can talk about some of that history and why. But, yes. but uh, uh, 
Mr. Smith said that since 1990, this was in 2010 he said this, since 1990, the DCCC has endorsed 45 candidates, 40 of whom were elected. And mm-hmm. so I think that drives a lot of the sense that, you know, that endorsement is important. Now, as a political scientist, I'll say, which one's causing the other? You know, maybe the causality goes the other way. But, but there's definitely the perception that they are at least choosing winners. They may not be the reason why they're winning, but they're choosing winners, right? And and that's a part of that party building. You want to choose winning candidates, right? Uh, and so that's the basic uh, idea there uh, of why it's perceived to be important. In addition to sort of partisan races, there was a lawsuit run in the 1990s that allowed the DCCC to endorse nonpartisan races. So that's why our local, most of our local elected offices are nonpartisan officially, mayors and the city government of California, judicial elections, nonpartisan officially. The DCCC can endorse and does endorse in those races. Um, and because we have a strong competition between two well-organized factions of the sort of Democratic Party in, in this, in this uh, city and county, that's why I think this is so important and why there's so much uh, effort to try to win a place on this uh, local uh, Democratic Party Central Committee. Yeah. So just to emphasize, the DCCC doesn't actually have any jurisdiction at all over city business. But like you've already mentioned, there are members of the DCCC who are currently serving members of local government. Why? Why do city legislators want to be on this committee? What does it bring them? Well, uh, most probably they don't want to be on, on the committee. It's an extra responsibility. <laughs> you know, I, it's okay. It's an important <laughs> office and they care about it. They're all, almost all of them are members of the Democratic Party uh, and, and care about the future of the Democratic Party. But traditionally, and, and by that I mean in the last, let's say, 50 years or so, it was the case that this was a place for recruiting people who are activists or organizers, important sort of unknown people in the Democratic Party and also helping to sort of groom them into probably future elected office. A, a lot of uh, you know elected officials started out as maybe running for this this DCCC or being placed and appointed to the DCCC. It's a way to again uh, cultivate sort of your your minor leagues, so to speak, to use a phrase that used to mean something. Uh, that the idea of, of your your farm team, right, of future yeah. uh, candidates. And so it's part of that party building thing. That's really great. I think if you go back about 150 years in places like New York, you saw. Elected officials, bosses, they were called, control the Democratic Party through these committees. A lot of that was cleaned up and reformed and and, and made illegal or or, or not allowed, at least. In in my research, it shows that in the post sort of Willie Brown era, Willie Brown really wielded effective control over the uh, uh, DCCC and ran a lot of people who were, uh, you know, sort of part of his sort of faction, a part of his team, so to speak, and effectively were elected to the DCCC, used that power to endorse people who were part of the Willie Brown sort of uh, loyalty organization. Also, though, I think opening up to, you know, newly mobilizing groups in the city, I think there was a lot of uh, discussion of African-Americans and Asian-Americans uh, sort of running and being represented uh, on the DCCC in the 1990s and early 2000s. But... Uh, there's a guy named Aaron Peskin who was an activist in the early 2000s, and he was part of the uh, Tom Amiano uh, campaign for mayor, who, um, who did not defeat Willie Brown, uh, um, but tried to in 1999. And they started organizing, and, and they perceived that, that the Democratic Party endorsement was an important part of, of Willie Brown's um, sort of strength. Eventually, Gavin Newsom inherited a lot of that sort of uh, support. And so they began to organize to try to take control of the DCCC in the early 2000s. 
I, I think Aaron Preston probably deserves credit for this, is running elected officials, people who are elected members of the, of the Board of Supervisors, not recruiting unknowns and sort of running and, and then trying to direct votes their way, but rather having elected officials run themselves. Some of the first references I saw to this was in 2008, and there was three members of the Board of Supervisors, Chris Daly, Aaron Peskin, and I believe Jack Goldsmith. Uh, I believe that's the case. Uh, I may be wrong about that, that last one. Ran for and were elected to the DCCC. And since then, you've seen a lot of progressive uh, politicians who are identified with a progressive faction of, of, of San Francisco politics who are elected officials to the board running for the DCCC as well. The idea was that voters don't know who these people are. Right. We don't know who these people are necessarily. Some of the insiders and people who are involved might know their names. But voters, if they recognize a name, they're going to they're going to gravitate to those names they recognize. And you have up to 10 slots usually sometimes. Right. So that's hard for me. I don't know all, all of these people. Right. But if you have six, seven, eight elected officials running. They're citywide elected officials or they're part of the board or they were prominent candidates who had benefited from a campaign, you know, TV commercials and mailers. Their names are going to be more familiar. They're going to be more likely to be elected. And that's what we saw. Well, we, in 2016, the last time we, we did elections for this, you um, had quite a few elected officials. I believe it was, let's see, in the 17th district, there were 14 winners and 11 of those were elected either current or previously well-known candidates, uh, elected officials. You know, so you see a huge shift to where uh, it's elected officials that are, that are running and winning. And then a lot of them on the uh, sort of progressive side would then resign and appoint members. And then now they're running again, right? Mm-hmm. And, and some people think that's unethical. I happen to disagree with that. I think it's perfectly ethical. You know, the purpose of this is to run and, and win and, and get power and to you know, influence what the Democratic Party does. And that's what they're doing. So I have no problem with this. Other people, many of whom are my friends, do have a problem with this. But if you are running for office for, for one of these seats on the DCCC and you're not a previous elected official, it makes it much more unlikely that you're going to be able to win, no matter how strong of a campaign you run. Yeah, name recognition is a big deal. And yeah. actually, I've seen you know political journalists and columnists lament that the committee's gone from being a place where folks who want to get their start in politics can do so to a place that's pretty much dominated by already elected officials. So I'm kind of wondering if there's a different place, like a different trial ground for you know, baby politicians to kind of start out if it isn't DCCC anymore. You know, politics isn't, uh, it's not a hobby. It's not a game. There's no training grounds necessarily. Now, a lot of this is done informally and there's a lot of organizations and clubs. I I think Democratic Party clubs is where you'll see a lot of the sort of, Mm -hmm. to use your term, baby politicians are trained. And I I think that's great. That might not have been very nice. (laughs) Probably not, right? But but it's a good term. But, uh, you know, there's plenty of places where people can get some experience and knowledge and make themselves known. And to be more precise, contribute to the community and, and to the and to the, the politics of the city of San Francisco. It's not easy, and, and there's a lot of places for them to do that. I think a lot of people would like to see it here as well, but I think that's misunderstanding the role of this committee, and that's, and that's you know, if you have a majority of people that will vote one way and you can endorse people and win office, and, and it's about winning power. And I have very little patience for, for people who are complaining that politicians are being unfair. Um, there's something unfair about this, or at least there's something illegitimate about this. Well, so you have described it as not being illegitimate. Well, just recently, a group of activists filed a ballot measure that would forbid someone who holds local office from being a member of the DCCC. And if they did so anyway, those officials could be subject to suspension or removal. So these are people who are currently themselves hoping to be elected to DCCC. And they allege that local electeds have used money raised through DCCC races to funnel them into campaign contributions to their own election campaigns for other offices. Um, 
that that's one portion of this. But what would change if this ballot measure were passed and we just couldn't have elected officials on DGPLC anymore? You know, what you would see is you would have people running who are not well known, and, and you would still have these two factions recruiting slates of candidates and spending, you know, raising money and spending money to get them elected, mm-hmm. right? They would just have less. Um, that would be a little bit more of a chancy random process. So if I was on in one of these factions and cared about this, it, it would be frustrating because, you know, you never know, right? I think what would happen is voters would use things that are not about, um, the name familiarity of elected official, and they would use aspects of their names, perhaps that they might associate with maybe gender, other signals, right, or 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 race and ethnicity. You'll see, you know, voters when they don't have party information or reliable sort of trusted endorsements from other politicians or familiarity with a candidate, they fall back on things uh, uh, that uh, they you know maybe deeper in their brains. And I think things that I study like race and ethnicity will 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 be a strong signal in that regard. But what you'll see is probably lesser, p- fewer people than voting in these elections. They may choose not to mark those ballots, right, because they're not as familiar with the names. Yeah. Uh, um, but but what you'll see is is you know you see that competition just take a different form, right? And and you know I think I understand and you know I can sympathize with people who who might want to who think this is unfair, but you know nonetheless. Um, you know, it's it's rarely the case that people will vote based on the idea of an unfair process, process arguments about the purity of a process or the or the people should be, you know, uh, run op, run for office based on their principles. And if they're against money in certain situations, they should be against it here. Right. I don't know all the ins and outs of the of the, the laws of funneling money in one way or the other. But nonetheless, uh, um, I think this is about gaining power and gaining control of the Democratic Party. And I'm pretty you know OK with that. Uh, but it, it would change, but just not that much. Yeah. And actually, this has been a conversation for some time, right? Because um, DCCC candidates can legally, as far as I know, raise unlimited amounts of money. But in 2016, the committee did adopt a resolution limiting central committee campaign contributions to just $500. Have you seen sort of this conversation go in a certain direction? Um, I know that the, they passed that resolution. I also know that uh, from recent reporting that many of the candidates, especially the ones that are well-known or previous elected officials or current elected officials, have not abided by those quote-unquote limits. Um, I suspect it's because they're not enforceable. It was not the force of law. It was the committee itself passing a resolution encouraging, so to speak, uh, uh, people to, to abide by these uh, contribution limits in the sense of signaling a more fair and open process. And I, look, people may think that's a good idea, and, and I can understand that argument. Um, but as far as I can tell, it's not illegal. They're not violating any kind of uh, law or regulation uh, that has legal force. But uh, uh, they are raising money in excess of those contributions, sometimes quite a bit in excess. Those, those, that information is freely available. Uh, um, you can look it up on, on various websites uh, about the candidates having to report their, their financial contributions. My, my, important, my point is it's, it's hard to raise money, and, and people who are well-known can do it better. They're more likely to raise money. It's one of those uh, the perks of, of being elected is you are well-known, and, and you have to work hard to raise that money. So I understand that people can complain about that, but I tend not to, to sympathize with too much with that argument. What uh, final thoughts would you leave somebody with who is staring down this slate of more than 50 candidates? Um, wh- where and how can voters best inform themselves about how to vote for Democratic County Central Committee or other county central committees? To be perfectly honest, this is, this is hard. It's hard for me to find this information sometimes. Uh, there is a list of candidates. All the, all the candidates running are declared, and, and there's a ballot designation that they put uh, after their name. 
Some of them will say, say, you know, supervisor of the board, San Francisco, you know, county board. Uh, others will say incumbent member of the DCCC. Others will say, you know, activist. Uh, um, that's not much information, but it's some. There's also um, efforts to create slates of candidates, and you'll see some identify with the more progressive faction. You'll see some identify with the more moderate liberal faction of, of politicians in San Francisco. Organized, I think generally the, the, the more moderate liberal is or, uh, faction is organized by Scott Wiener and David Chu. Uh, um, the more progressive uh, faction is identified and, and organized more by people like uh, David Campos and, and, and um, Hillary Ronan uh, um, as well. And so you see, you know, Jane Kim is involved with that as well. So again, previous elected officials they will, you know, uh, produce lists. You're going to get mailers about those, you know, their slates, vote for these candidates. Most of the local Democratic Party clubs have endorsements, uh, you know, so you'll find information there. I actually think it's one of the best ways to find information about local politics is find a local Democratic Party club that you identify with, uh, that you that you like, get involved, go to their meetings, and, and you know, look at their endorsements. Uh, and that's a lot of where I found this information. And then um, various news organizations will often do endorsements as well, and that's a good way to find that information. Um, but you're, you're going to receive some mailers. There's, there's going to be some money spent on this election. In 2016, um, there was well over $2 million spent uh, in the DCCC election by both sort of competing factions uh, from the information I've found. Um, so you will be getting some mailers and seeing other information uh, with information about the various candidates and, and, and who to support. Uh, um, and so I, I would encourage you to find that information and and uh, you don't have to vote for those, but you'll see information about them. And then many of the candidates have websites of their own as well. So uh, uh, always a good idea to, if you have your ballot, uh, your sample ballot, uh, uh, maybe you know Google some of their names and see if their, their websites pop up. Well, thanks for coming in again and helping me better understand this. My pleasure. That was San Francisco State University Associate Professor of Political Science, Jason McDaniel. I'm Laura Wenis, and you've been listening to Civic. I'm John, and I'm a volunteer with the San Francisco Public Press, living in the Mission. You're listening to KSFP, LP San Francisco, 102.5 FM.